Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with the story of spiraling electricity prices in the province of Ontario. Never cheaper to produce, never more expensive for the consumer, and the worst is yet to come, declares our guest, Ross McKittrick. He's an economics professor at the University of Guelph. He's an author. And he's a columnist with the Financial Post. And, uh, Ross, thank you very much for, for taking the time. I mean, this was all brought forward in, a, in a, just a small news story. And I'll be talking to the man involved later on, actually just in a few minutes' time, a supermarket in northern Ontario that's been serving the community for 37 years, upgraded all its refrigeration uh, equipment, and still found they could not afford the hydro costs and closed two-thirds of their 5,000-square-foot store. Mm. So there's one story, one person, one business. And I'll, ask, I'll start my conversation with you by asking this question. Why are Ontarians paying so much more for electricity now? Uh, well, good afternoon, Roy. Um, as I explained in a, a column I wrote in the Financial Post uh, back in the summer, which we've talked about, um, although the cost to generate electricity now is uh, historically very low. It's the lowest it's been in decades. There's a surcharge that's added to your electricity cost called the global adjustment. And uh, it is used to support a what basically is a slush fund that the province manages to cover cost overruns uh, in the rest of the electricity system, especially things related to um, paying renewable power generators, and then some of it also goes to nuclear refurbishment costs and um, hydro facilities. Uh, um, a lot of the small hydro facilities that have been built in the recent uh, years are, are very high-cost facilities. Um, so it's basically it's taken uh, the market out of the whole picture. So at a time when the, the market is providing electricity cheaper than ever, uh, innovations, fracking of natural gas, um, new uh, supply sources um, mean we could actually be paying a very low cost for electricity. This, um, this government-run system called the Global Adjustment, um, the, the amounts that they've committed to mean that they have to tack on an extremely large surcharge each month to your electricity bill through the global adjustment. And so it used to be the global adjustment was um, maybe half a cent per kilowatt hour uh, 10 years ago, and it's now at about 11 cents per kilowatt hour. And so um, the cost of electricity, meanwhile, has gone down to about 3 cents per kilowatt hour, the actual um, price we pay to generate it. So what you're seeing on your bills is not money that's um, required to actually produce the electricity. It's money that's required to cover the cost of all these government programs that have been brought in. And you write that even if Ontarians try to conserve power or do conserve power and demand drops in hydro rates, these rates will climb nevertheless, and exporting power often ends up with Ontario exporting surplus power at a loss. So, So who negotiated this? This, this program, and we now have Ontario signing a deal with Quebec for a billion dollars for hydro, as I understand it, we don't need. Yeah, on, well, on the conservation side, um, uh, a lot of the, the contracts that have been signed uh, guarantee the payments to generators. Um, it's, it's a revenue guarantee. And so 
Um, they're guaranteed a certain amount each month. And if the demand isn't there in the system, so the system isn't actually selling enough power, then the amount that uh, they're short uh, each month goes up. So then that's why the rates go up as um, if conservation, if people respond to high prices and, and conservation programs and actually cut their consumption, shrinks the market and it means uh, there's a higher cost at the end of the month that the global adjustment has to cover. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you cut your usage. Your yeah, costs are going up anyway. Uh, either way, yes. So um, uh, at, at the system level, conservation actually works against us because it means uh, the hourly rates are forced up. As far as the exporting goes, that's a big problem this time of year because all those wind turbines, this is the time of year that they're running uh, at full tilt because we have a lot of wind, especially in the middle of the night in the fall in October and November. But that's the time when system demand is at the absolute minimum because people don't have their air conditioners on, uh, they don't have the lights on, it's the middle of the night. So we have far more electricity in the system than we can use, and that's when we have to dump it on um, the export market. Uh, if we're lucky, well, we, we pay 13.5 cents per kilowatt hour to the wind turbine operators, and those are 20-year contracts. So, like, we have to pay uh, whenever the wind is blowing. And um, so we're buying it from them at 13.5 cents. We would be lucky to get one cent per kilowatt hour on the export market uh, when we're dumping it. And so uh, this time of year, we are losing a lot of money on these export sales. And you're right that all of this tinkering... And that's a scary number you just ran by us. But, but you're right that all of this tinkering produced no special environmental benefits. In fact, closing the coal-fired power plants resulted in zero environmental gain because those plants were already, and this is 2005, responsible for less than 2% of fine particulate. Uh, yes, that's one of the, the points that um, it should have been, well, the government should have been honest about it up front. They had lots of... Um, propaganda out there about how uh, coal-fired power plants were polluting the skies and, and killing the children. And um, But the reality is uh, they were very small players um, in, as far as our own particulate emission sources go compared to other industries and motor vehicles. The coal-fired power sector gave us about as much particulates as the meatpacking plants. And in other words, they, they just weren't a big deal. And the government's own simulations showed um, when they, they had um, an independent engineering firm run simulations, what would happen to air quality in the province if we shut these plants down? And the numbers came back. It's extremely small. You wouldn't even notice it, except in the immediate vicinity of those plants. And then making things worse, uh, between the Lampton and Nanticoke power plants, there are 12 generating units altogether. Four of the 12 had been through a retrofit that put state-of-the-art scrubbers on them. And those scrubbers were capturing 95% of the particulate emissions. So you basically have got the um, equivalent particulate reductions compared to shutting the plants down altogether just from installing these scrubbers. And if they just finished that, if they just finished the installation on the other eight units, they would have got the equivalent reduction in particulates uh, without having to shut the plants down. We'd still be um, operating those coal-fired power plants um, but we wouldn't have been getting particulate emissions out of them. They'd have been running at um, very clean rates. And then we wouldn't have had to go through this whole renewables procurement and all the tinkering with the system, and we've, we'd be paying a lot less for our electricity, and we'd have uh, the same very small environmental improvements. The Premier 
called Ontarians really bad actors as far as greenhouse gas uh, production is concerned. That we're just not doing what we should be doing. And and as I said, you just explained to us that all of this tinkering really produced no special environmental benefit. So we know where we are. What we need to know is, based on the information you provided us, and the fact that 20-year contracts are out there, they're going to have to be fulfilled and riding on the back of the consumer. For the consumer and the small business person who today is horrified at the hydro bills they receive, what will those bills look like one year from now, two years from now, three years from now? Well, I looked at this uh, in a couple of reports that I did for the Fraser Institute over the past two years. And uh, so two years ago, uh, when um, Tom Adams and I uh, did a study, we at that point said the coming rate increases will drive down the rate of return to manufacturing in the province by about 10%. And you're going to start seeing businesses respond, as you indicated, uh, in that case, a retail business, but people having to, to shut down. And um, uh, the um, Chamber of Commerce um, put out some numbers showing the same thing, that they had a a lot of their members were planning to cancel investments or shut down altogether. So that's part of what people are going to see. As far as the rate increases go, um, it depends on um, if the government actually keeps doing what it says it's going to do. I mean, they're... Um, they've canceled one of their future renewables procurement programs, but they um, they still have a lot of uh, procurement contracts uh, on the table, and um, their ultimate goal is to bring in um, uh, a lot more uh, generating capacity through wind and solar than we currently have. And um, it, so to answer your question, it really comes down to whether the government stays on its same course. Um, if they do, then um, uh, the cost will just keep going up at, at something like the pace that we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, I don't see how they can do that. I mean, they're already realizing that this is uh, a crushing burden for households. And they're also realizing, hopefully, that the people that promised them they could make these changes to the electricity grid and it won't cost us anything um, didn't know what they were talking about and um, that the numbers never added up. And so um, as for what happens in the future, it really depends on um, on the policy decisions that are made. I mean, that's how we got to where we are. Uh, as I said at the beginning, it's not the market that uh, has done this to people. It's not the, the wholesale electricity market. Uh, these are policy-driven rate increases. Yeah. Tom, um, Ross, it's really frightening, actually, when government makes decisions like these decisions that impact on everyone and dramatically impact on everyone's ability to be economically safe based on information that is useless. Yeah. That's the that's the scary part. They did not understand or choose to understand and properly ratify what was what they were being told, and they went forward based on information that was, to use your your word, useless. Raj, thank you so much for the time. I'm about to speak to a businessman in northern Ontario who had to close two-thirds of his grocery store, which has been serving the community for 37 years because of Yeah, very rates. sad story. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Ross. Appreciate the time. You're welcome. All the best. Ross McKittrick, University of Guelph economics professor. Read his uh, columns in the Financial Post. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
The Nels Country Market in Echo Bay, Northern Ontario, has closed two-thirds of its store, mostly because of high energy costs. 5,000-square-foot store, from what I understand, no longer has a deli or bakery and has cut back greatly on fresh produce. They can't afford to keep the refrigeration equipment going, cut the staff from 7 to 3, and they've upgraded all refrigeration equipment to run far more efficiently. Loggy Donnell is the owner of Donnell's Supermarket in Echo Bay. He joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So, Loggy, thank you for the time. This must be crushing for you. Uh, yes, actually, uh, it's a major impact in our community. We've been in business uh, 37 years here in Echo Bay. And specifically, I, I read in the SueOnline.com that your hydro bills have gone from 2000 a month to 5000 a month. That's correct. In uh, approximately the last uh, 10 years, they've increased from two grand a month to the $5,000 we were paying the last year and a half or so. And you met with your member of parliament or the provincial member of the legislature. Did you get anything back that was useful? Was, was, was anything? I guess not. Well, no, everything's after the fact now. We've actually done the downsize, and um, there's really no repairing the damage um, to the community. Uh, I can't go back now, and uh, it's going to operate as a smaller convenience-based store uh, trying to service the needs of Echo Bay. And that hurts, obviously hurts the community. Definitely, definitely does. Uh, The store was actually built in 1958, and we've run it for 37 years, and uh, it's just not viable uh, as a full-service grocery store any longer. And I, I'm looking at a photograph from SueOnline.com, and, and it's of your store. And I see deli, fresh meat, specialty meats, uh, display units, refrigeration units, clearly a, a, an area that would have been active and would have been uh, favored by your, your customers. Nothing there. Shelves are bare. Closed down. Done. Yes, it's awful. exactly. What do you? What would you say? What do you want? What would you say to the Premier of Ontario? What would you say to the government of Ontario, which argues what they're doing is good for the uh, overall economy? It's good for the planet, and, and and would argue this is necessary. What would you say to them? Well, I I really believe that the government of Ontario has lost sight of the small business, and uh, incurring these costs are just going to uh, create uh, job losses and and. Similar things like you've seen in Echo Bay and other communities around the north, for sure. Um, it's just too costly. There has to be a profit at the end of the day, or why are you in business? I mean, yeah. it's simple. Can you stay in business? I think uh, we're viable as a uh, the new format that we've developed. Um, I, I'm quite hopeful that things will uh, proceed quite nicely the way that uh, I've designed the, uh, the new layout and the, the new concept. Two-thirds of the store is closed, and that's because of the hydro bills. Loggy, thank, yeah. thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for having me. Wish you all the very best under the circumstances. Greatly appreciate it. Take care. Have a good day. Loggy Donnell, Echo Bay. Have a look at Sue online. Donnell's Country Market in Echo Bay. Hydro rates way heavy. I guess another really bad actor, eh, Premier Wynn? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Well, today marks the second anniversary of the murder of Corporal Nathan Cirillo as the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Regiment soldiers stood ceremonial guard at the National War Museum in Ottawa, War Memorial in Ottawa. 
Corporal Cirillo was killed by ISIS supporter Michael Zihaf Bebo. And you know what happened afterwards in, in, in Parliament. Well, Ron Foxcroft was the honorary colonel of the Argyll and Sullivan Highlanders at the time of Corporal Cirillo's death. He was invited to Buckingham Palace to meet with the Queen, also the titular head of the regiment, and he went with other key senior officers of the regiment. Colonel Foxcroft joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Um, I've got some echo. Thank you. Um, Fox, when you think back to that day, two years ago today, where were you when you found out? Because it was such a shock to Canadians. I think we all know where we were when we found out that this was actually the second murder of a Canadian soldier uh, in two days by ISIS-supporting individuals. That's correct, uh, Roy, and, and uh, it was shocking. Uh, things like this are not supposed to happen in, in Canada, our wonderful country that everybody loves. I was uh, sitting, I'll never forget this, uh, Roy, the emotion of this, and it's hard to talk about it because yesterday, uh, in thinking about it, it brought back uh, uh, very serious uh, emotion when you think about uh, the family, uh, Nathan's mother, Nathan's two sisters, of course, Nathan's son, uh, Marcus, who at the time was four years old, and, of course, uh, who could forget his dogs. He was a, a, a great, great lover of rescue dogs. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll just jump ahead. Since then, Councillor Ferguson let, led an effort in Hamilton, in Ancaster, Ontario, to name a leash-free dog park after Nathan. But to answer your question, I was sitting at my desk mid-morning, received a phone call from the then chief, uh, Chief Glenn DeCare. And, uh, you know, Roy, uh, we could not have arranged uh, as efficiently this gigantic celebration of life, the funeral for Nathan, uh, without Chief DeCare and the Hamilton Police Service, which is just an uh, extraordinary police service in, in Canada. And I must say, without Hamilton support, the citizens, the city council, and the then mayor, uh, Mayor Bratina, Mayor Bratina, who now is a uh, liberal member of parliament, um, we could not have done that, but the call came from Chief DeCare, and uh, to it's an understatement, Roy, to say it was an emotional shock, and uh, then we had to start the wheels, not me, but the regiment, the real wheels in motion to make things happen to properly uh, tribute uh, Nathan. So, what was your job, and, and when you went when you went to see the soldiers in the regiment? Th- these are these are young men, young women. These are. These are these are volunteers who put on the uniform, and 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 pledge to defend Canada. I tweeted earlier. Um, it's never fashionable to be a warrior until the warrior's bravery and self-sacrifice is called for. Then, all too briefly, we thank them. What was what would what did you do? What was your responsibility? And how did the regiment respond to what happened? And this had to be just an uh, just an we know an incredible shock. These are brave soldiers. These are brave reserves who are battle-ready and who train very, very hard, Roy, and I'm glad you asked that question. 
with uh, the then honorary Lieutenant Colonel Rick Kennedy, who, by the way, Roy, was uh, the commanding officer of the Argyles twice. Uh, just an amazing man, a very, very talented man, and a very strategic man. So we, the leadership of uh, the Argyles, the officers, the the commanding officer, and I must say, Lawrence Hatfield was the commanding officer, and he was a bear of a man. And, and under the most trying circumstances, including emotion. So that night, Roy, was a uh, training night. It was a Wednesday, and traditionally, the Argyles train, and they train very hard on Wednesday night. Well, you could imagine going into the armories, the training facility, which you're very familiar with in Hamilton, uh, with a heavy heart, with heavy emotion, and this is training night. Mm -hmm. And Colonel Hatfield uh, led the, the troops, led the regiment, and said, what would Nathan have wanted? And, and everybody said, Nathan would want us to train. So we trained, the regiment trained uh, vigorously that night, uh, all carrying a heavy heart. Uh, and you can imagine, Roy, the, the heavy heart while well, you're working hard and you're training. But that, that, you know, Nathan was a bear of a man. He was a leader, and that's exactly what he wanted. Well, then at that point when training ended, it was time to grieve, and it was time to grieve as a regiment. And everybody in life grieves differently everybody uh handles tragedy much different you know but it, it was really really nice it was it was heartfelt that we all got to grieve together as a regiment as a team shoulder to shoulder side by side there was a lot of tears and we grieved till about midnight, knowing that we had the next few days would be the uh, most difficult emotional time of our regimental life. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Ron Foxcroft was the honorary colonel for the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Regiment at the time of the death of Corporal Nathan Cirillo two years ago today. Fox, as we, uh, as I was saying, and as you know, and as you mentioned, the entire nation was emotionally engaged, involved, invested in what happened, and we all watched, and we all were in mourning together. And you were part of that motorcade that went from Ottawa to Toronto, and drove along the Highway of Heroes. Remind us of what you saw. Never quite seen anything like this in all of Canada, and as I said earlier, Roy. Uh, uh, Nathan's uh, honor captured uh, the hearts of all Canadians, and, and that is not a, a, an exaggeration in any way whatsoever. Uh, chief DeCare, uh, the Hamilton Police Chief, uh, Colonel Kennedy and Mayor Bertine and I joined the me uh, me um, motorcade just outside of Mississauga, and Roy, you have never seen anything like it. Every single overpass from the time we joined it, and I assume from Ottawa to Hamilton, was just covered with, with Canadian people tributing uh, Nathan, tributing the Reserves, tributing the Argyles, waving flags, singing O Canada. Roy, it's quite a memory, uh, you know, uh, a sad memory, but it's quite a memory that I will never forget the, uh, the rest of my life. And, and specifically... When we entered Hamilton on Main Street, 
they were 10 deep on both sides of Main Street going down to the funeral home, which was quite a distance. It it was about uh, 10 or 12 kilometers down Main Street to the funeral home, and they were just 10 or 12 deep. Everybody was singing. Everybody was cheering. Of course, everybody at the same time was sad. There were a lot of tears. There was a lot of emotion, a lot of flags. But on every intersection, we rolled down the window, and we could hear people singing, Oh, Canada. Um, You know, even in death, uh, Roy, Nathan had a way of uniting Canada like nobody in our history. When we arrived at the funeral home, you could imagine his family were there. They got out. But if there is a way to, to give strength, and, and, you know, it, there's not really a way to garner strength here. That was the time that, that uh, I know the family noticed that, and they were so much appreciative. The next uh, two days, of course, we put together, arranged what many people say was the best, the biggest funeral in the history of Canada. And the night before the funeral, um, we met with the five first responders that were on scene with Nathan on the day that he was shot. The family, uh, the leadership of the Argyles, Colonel Colonel Kennedy, Colonel Hatfield, myself, uh, the Padre, and uh, we we met. Roy, can you imagine uh, that emotion? But um, Mrs. Cirillo wanted to hear, uh, wanted to hear, you know, what what happened. And of course, I, I don't want to repeat what was said. But that was a very emotional time. Right. And then came the invitation to go to England, to go to London, to go to, the, to Buckingham Palace and meet with the Queen. And the Queen was the, was the titular head of the regiment, correct? Yes. The, the Queen is our colonel-in-chief of the Argyle Regiment. Okay. And, uh, of course, I was the honorary colonel at the time. Colonel Hatfield was the commanding officer, Colonel Kennedy, and now the honorary lieutenant colonel today is Glenn Gibson, uh, the uh, vice chairman of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. This uh, tragedy really did affect the Queen. We we had uh, a lot of communication with the Queen and Buckingham Palace, and her equerry had said to us uh, by phone, by email, that this tragedy in Canada touched the Queen. It touched her very much. Uh, she always refers to the Argyle Regiment as her regiment. She's very proud that she's the colonel-in-chief of the Argyle Regiment in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So we got communication, and we were asked by Her Majesty to get over to Buckingham Palace, to her apartment, because it was very important to her in person that she express condolence to the Cirillo family and to the Argyle family. So we went over there on May the 19th, uh, 2014, went into her apartment with her corgi dogs, and it was to be an audience of 10 minutes. Roy, it ended up to be 50, 5-0 minutes with the Queen. And the one thing as myself and um, my associates, the, the leaders of the Argyle Regiment, that really touched our heart, she knew every detail of what had happened. She knew all the workings of the Argyles. And at one point, she stopped and she paused and looked us right in the eyes. 
and she said, you know, the best reserves in the world are Canadian, and they're the best trained because they're Canadian trained. And she repeated, the best reserves in the world, the best reserve soldiers in the world are Canadian. Roy, that takes your knees away from you it takes your uh, the wind it takes your emotion right away from you that you're in england in in buckingham palace with her majesty the queen who is our leader our colonel in chief and she says we're the best reserve soldiers in all the world uh, it's quite quite uh, an emotional time for us well an incredible tribute as well to to the regiment to canada's military to the canadian people because we all came together one of those times where the whole country comes together because of something that happens. In this case, it was a tragic circumstance, the loss of, uh, of, of Corporal Cirillo and, and of course, uh, Patrice Vincent two days earlier. Uh, we, we all felt this, this national loss, and we all asked ourselves, what next? And those are the moments where we either come together or we separate, and we... Uh, it was amazing. It was emotional. Thank you, Ron, for joining us and, and sharing the the memories, and it took many people by surprise that yeah. when they realized that it was two years, it's been two years, it took many people by surprise. Roy, thank you for allowing us to talk about this and continue to tribute Corporal Cirillo because at the funeral with the Prime Minister present, our commanding officer, Lawrence Hadfield, said his memory will never be forgotten. And I can tell you on your national show the memory of Corporal Nathan Cirillo will never be forgotten by Hamilton, by the Argyles, and by Canadians. Thank you, Ron. Much appreciated. Ron Thank Foxcroft, you, the uh, former honorary colonel of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Regiment in Hamilton. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, last Saturday, I read you a posting that came in from Trish. And she sent it to my webpage, and I will confess, when I first saw it, I thought, should I post this or not? Should I do this or not? Is it going to cause more trouble than it should? And I ran it by a bunch of people, and some in this business and some not. I shouldn't say a bunch, a few people. I don't want to sound like Joe Scarborough. Um... He always talks about all these people he talks to, but he never mentions who they are. So I, I ran it by a few people I know, and almost unanimously it was, no, 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 don't read it, Roy. It's going to cause you problems. So, of course, Roy had to read it, and it turned out to be a fantastic segment. We had terrific phone calls, and we had great input, and it, it, was, it could have gone on for three hours as uh, studio producer said. So the, the, the posting was written by Trish. So I contacted Trish, and I asked her to come on this program. And she joins me on the show. Hi, Trish. Hi, Roy. Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you. And there is no politically correct for short. <laughs> no, eh? That's it. <laughs> no, I'm Sh- short. Short is short. <laughs> well, but I heard a, I heard this commercial for... For a store where they sell clothing for uh, men under five foot eight, I think that's the way they put it. But I never once heard the word short. 
So I thought, mm-hmm. maybe I can't say short anymore. <laughs> can I say tall? I'm six foot two. Can I, can I say tall? You're I tall. I guess I, I must be. I'm short. There you That's go. Right. Okay, so self-con- <laughs> self-confessed short person. You can't be in trouble. If she says she's short, she's short. Did you ever, did you expect me, that I would read your, your post on air? Did you think I would do that? No. No, I didn't. And when you did, You I, listened, um, right? You, you listened. Yes, you, I was listening. Okay. And I was quite surprised to hear it on air. And um, my son and I were talking while this was on air and we both felt that i was really going to get slammed because it what i had to say wasn't politically correct but you weren't slammed and i wasn't and i was so pleasantly surprised not one person not one caller to use your word, slammed you. Not one in our, I think our first caller said he is of uh, East Asian origin and uh, first generation Canadian born uh, of Pakistani origin. And he sided with you uh, most, yes. mostly. He did yes. challenge you uh, on, on, on a couple of points, but he, yes. he sided with you and, and, it, and it created what I, I'm always so encouraged by, uh, about. It created a really useful, positive, moving dialogue between people about an issue that needs to be talked about. If it's brought up, it should be talked about, not just pushed on the back burner or dealt with by with politically correct language by some elected official who's been told what to say by a bureaucrat. Yes. <laughs> but okay. but your issue is one that we again that we spoke about in in great detail with great callers, and you heard it, and I read your post last weekend. Please read it. Please read your post yourself now, if you would. Okay. Hello, Roy. I guess I'm a deplorable racist. I have lived in my current home for over 25 years. Over the years, I have become a minority. I see no immigrants other than those from India and Pakistan. When my daughter was school age, she was the only Caucasian girl in her class. She was shunned by her classmates and generally had a very difficult time until I felt compelled to transfer her to a new school. I believe that our immigration system is not conclusive, inclusive, I'm sorry, of Europeans, Australians, and others who share our culture. The immigrants in my community do not attempt to integrate in any way. Rather, they look upon me with contempt as I try to find my personal space in the grocery lineup and have no consideration for others as they attempt to barter at the checkout for some perceived flaw in the merchandise. I am at a loss as to how people who speak neither basic English or French have become Canadian citizens. I have concluded that I must leave my adult children behind and move to a small town in order to live in a community where a 50-something Caucasian woman can feel included in the community. Oh, to live in Switzerland where my opinion mattered. Thank you for discussing this, Roy. So so there's your, your posting, as, and, and you read it so much better than I did because it's your words and your feelings and your experience. So I have to ask you this, first of all, because the question that I'm going to be asking, and we'll put this out to our callers at 888-225-8255 and 416-870-6400, 
888-225-8255-416-870-6400. The question I asked last weekend, do you, when you hear Trish's posting, do you hear racism or do you hear an issue that we need to talk about in this country that is not talked about um, because people feel uncomfortable talking about it? 888-225-8255-416-870-6400. Is Trish a deplorable racist or is this an issue that needs to be talked about? Is there any, for you, is there any, um, does it matter to you whether somebody you live, who lives next door to you or as in your community, or if the majority of your community is non-Caucasian, just fundamentally, does that matter to you? No. No. And my children have a very different experience than I do, because my children are in their 20s and 30s, and their friends were born in Canada, and they all intermingle, they all basically share the same culture it's people my age and i don't know if this is the family reintegration program or what it is but people my age seem to come to canada and cannot speak either of our official languages i cannot communicate with my neighbors and i feel very left out in my neighborhood Okay, so this is this is your personal experience. Yes. And and you feel that for you to be live in a community where you could, where you feel part of the community, you have to move somewhere because you're not being included in what's going on around you by the people who are living around you now, right? So if, if I'm correct. expressing that correctly. Yeah. All yeah. right, so it's not an issue of we've already said before she's not a racist. She's no, Dealing I, I with don't her. care what color your skin no. is. I really, honestly, don't. Like, I, I work with people of, you know, very di- many different backgrounds. But people that were born in Canada, I find are, quote-unquote, Canadian. And people that are new immigrants that have not learned the language or been raised in our culture... Um, are very different. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Richard's in, uh, Richard's in Calling Lake, Alberta. Richard, thank you very much for your call, sir. Hey, no problem. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Um, okay. Maybe she can, we first of all, can, we, can we first of all say that it's an important issue to talk about? Yeah, it certainly is. You know, we're in the 21st century. Canada right. is definitely known as the multicultural country. Um, I love it. You know, I'm First Nations, and I get treated well by the, you know, immigrant uh, population, much better than I do mainstream. Uh, Your guest may not be racist, but I think now she has a feeling of what it is. She's experienced it now. And ultimately, you know, go to Trump land. If he gets in, she can go because he wants to build walls and he, you know, segregation. Are, are, are you angry? Know. Are you angry at uh, Trish, Richard? Not angry. Just saying, you know, if she doesn't like it, go to Switzerland. You know, World War II, here's a little history, um, when the American GIs were, uh, uh, the, the Navy, the the black sailors weren't allowed on shore. They said absolutely no. They were, they were not allowed to get off the boat in Switzerland, Denmark. 
So I'm not sure if their policies have changed since then. I'm sure they have. Well, but, the Swiss, uh, I mean, Swiss is a land, Switzerland is a landlocked country, but that's, you know, that's nitpicking. It, it's a 21st century. That's nitpicking. Yeah, let, let me, now, Trish, you're not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you said to me, uh, and you emailed me off the air, this is not about racism, yours. This is about you feeling comfortable. Anyway, you, you go ahead and talk to Richard. Hi, Richard. Hello. Um, I love your culture. And I know at hockey games, at football games, they often have First Nations drum circles and things. And I love that. But you don't walk down the street in a headdress and buckskin. Well, I am a visible uh, First Nation, you know, the long hair, the braid. And, um, you know, I don't wear it on my sleeve, as the saying goes, but I'm proud of it. And that's my, I identify with that visually. And you should be. And if I was your neighbor, I could chat with you. But I, I have a question for you, Trish. In your community, is it about the the newcomers who've come to your community who exclude you, or is it is it would you be would you be comfortable in the community as it is if you felt that you were included? I would be much more comfortable if I felt included. Like I can't, I can't speak the language that most of my neighbors speak, and so I can't socialize with them. Um, when they walk down my street in the evening, I, I can't really say hello to them. They, I don't know. People don't talk to you. people. Don't talk to you. So, so Richard, I don't know if it's an East Asian thing or whatever. I used to always have my dogs out front with me, and my dogs are very well behaved, and they always cross the street because I have dogs outside, and and I see women walking. But here's these people are great. Walkers, here's my question, and, and and the women are walking like I don't know ten paces behind the male counterpart. Yeah. Trish, Trish, here's my I'm question. Thinking, though. This is Trish, with him. Trish, here's a question. Um, is enough effort made by people of different backgrounds in Canada to, and you, and you know this is your, it's your community, is enough effort being made by people on both sides to get to know each other? And Richard, that's, I think that's the, that's the, um, that's that the bottom line, right? That is a big issue. And I don't think there is an effort on either side mm-hmm. and I know for myself the, the the language is a big barrier like I can smile at them and wave hello but I can't converse with them okay Richard let me let me yes. just let me just get Richard on the air quickly here yes and I have to take a break Richard what do you what do you propose your first nations what do you propose because everybody's a, a, an immigrant right um, um, other than... I come from a unique perspective, sir, and yeah. um, of being of being raised in uh, non-native foster homes and reconnecting with my culture oh, about 30 years ago. Didn't know a word. Uh, I understand it not too bad now. I can speak it. You know, I can get by. You know, even with um, the Muslim faith, and I believe uh, it's Arabic and some of the different dialects. I've learned a few words, and you know when you say to a uh, person of a Muslim faith, you know, salam alaikum, that you just get a really nice response, and then it's not hard. Just learn some of the language, embrace it, as opposed to fearing it, and uh, it's 
just gets better. It's interesting what you say because I, and I think I mentioned this last weekend, I spoke with a French-Canadian senator a, n- a number of years ago about when we were talking about multiculturalism and it was also the issue of reasonable accommodation. That was the big term about uh, seven or eight years ago. So he said, he said, you know, here's, here's, if you take a Francophone who doesn't speak a word of English and you take an Anglophone who doesn't speak a word of French and you put them in, in, a, in a city they've never been in before and you put them on a street corner and you tell them you have to get to such and such a destination within this city, they will find a way to get the de- to the destination. They'll do it together and by the time they get there, they're going to be friends. Yes. If I could share a quick story, um, I used to deliver buses from the east to the west and... Anyhow, from St. Jerome, we stop in at La Chute. I uh, stop in at Tim Hortons. Everything's in French. I say to the lady, my best French, non parlez français, I don't speak French. And she smiled and said, my English not too good either. We had a great laugh. We got along and we worked it out. I think just embrace it as opposed to, I would say, fearing it. But it goes a long way and it can be. An, it's an awesome experience when you see another culture and, and learn about it. Great call, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Well, I've said it uh, publicly, and I you need to know where I stand. I'll always tell you where I stand on issues and on people, and I have great admiration for our next guest. I really think he should be the prime minister of this country. He's the premier of Saskatchewan, and he uh, represents his people, his province, exceedingly well. And, um, well, I'm just a fan of Brad Wall, period. Joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Roy, thanks for having me on, and thanks for your kindness. Let me start with this. uh, Get get your thoughts on the developing story out of Europe, the free trade deal between Europe and Canada, CETA, C-E-T-A, Christia Freeland, our minister involved, was very emotional yesterday, and news reports suggest that she was on the brink of tears. She says now it's Canada's not going to take any more, make any more moves. It's up to the Europeans. What is what is your sense of this of this free trade agreement for Canada and Europe? Well, CETA is important for the country. It's it's important for agriculture in particular uh, to to our province's economic interests, but obviously the uh, the importance of the agreement goes beyond that one sector. Um, you know, I, we also as a government have been calling on first the Harper government and now the Trudeau government to to really focus on Asia, uh, because that's where, as you know, Wayne Gretzky's saying was uh, uh, when they asked why he was so good, he, he said he was never really worried about where the puck is. He was more worried about where the puck was going to be. Well, the puck is in Asia now, and it's going to be there for a long time in terms of growth and in terms of demand for things that Canada has. And so seed is very important. Uh, we, we've been supportive of it from the very beginning. We remain supportive. We also hope the government continues to focus on the Asian opportunity for Canada. All right, Premier, let's talk about this carbon tax that the Prime Minister of Canada seems to be, well, not seems to be, is determined is going to become a fact of life in, in Canada. You tweeted earlier today, how many jobs should we risk for a carbon tax to make us feel good while having no impact on global GHGs, not one? Please speak to that. Well, first of all, uh, if the carbon tax helps get Canada to its target of 30% below 2005 levels, and by the way, uh, our position is, and if you look even at what BC's experience has been where emissions have gone up, absolute emissions have gone up since 2010, 
there's really little prospect of carbon taxes reducing uh, emissions uh, if that's all you know if that's the the meat or the heart of the, the policy. Uh, and even if it though it were to be successful, we're talking about then 30% of 1.6% because Canada's emissions account for 1.6% of global emissions. So something less than a third of that, if we happen to get to the target, uh, a third of 1.6%, and it's worth repeating, uh, is what we're talking about here. And that will not change the planet's temperature. It won't uh, you know, fix the climate change issue or address it in any meaningful way. And that's, I guess, our point. When we proposed the alternative this weekend, I was talking about the fact that there are 2,400 coal plants on the books and being built now in the world. 2,400. Emissions from those plants, 6.5 billion tons per year when they're built. Even the president of the, uh, of the World Bank has said, if Asia goes ahead with their coal plans, Paris is dead. And I'm paraphrasing, but not much used. It is finished. That was his, that's a direct quote. So I'm saying, why don't we as Canadians lead in technology? We've, we've set the foundation for it in our province in terms of the world's only post-combustion uh, capture unit on a coal plant that's working today. That's generation one of the technology. Let's get to generation two, three, and four so you can deploy it effectively, cost-effectively. Uh, and what we're saying to the prime minister is we need some man-moon mission boldness around this. I mean, what was it, 10 years before there was... Uh, manned space flight, Kennedy, uh, man on the moon, Kennedy called for that country to do that. That's the kind of technological focus we need. If we're serious about it. If we're serious about climate change, let's not kid ourselves with carbon taxes uh, or pricing carbon. Let's focus on technology that will actually do something about the problem. Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau uh, has himself said that the Canadian economy is sliding so, uh, and you tweeted, Fed's own report admits the carbon tax would force companies to leave Canada and force many job losses. So I, I, the question that you're, I hear you asking is, why at this time do you want to introduce a tax that's going to prove to be a negative onto the, to the economy and to job creation? This is a very large country, obviously. We have a number of trade-exposed industries. In fact, our, our biggest industries are trade-exposed. We have to get those goods to market. That take There's a long distance to get them across the country, never mind to the markets around the world. So that economy, our economy, is going to be particularly vulnerable to, uh, to, a layer, to adding another layer of costs that are focused on carbon. Um, for our province, carbon-intense industries include agriculture, oil, oil and gas, and mining, and some large manufacturing. Well, that's the very heart of our economy. Uh, and... If the economy is weakening now, as the finance minister himself has said, then this is clearly not the time to be talking about $10 a ton carbon tax escalated to $50 a ton. You know, and when I spoke earlier this week in, uh, in Regina to lay out our position, because I don't believe it's good enough just to complain. We wanted to provide an alternative. But we had to set the context. You know, uh, we, uh, we have great pulse farmers in Saskatchewan. We're the leading pulse growers in the world. A lentil farmer in Saskatchewan with a 10 escalating to $50 carbon tax, Roy, will be competing with a lentil farmer in North Dakota that has no such tax. And we are kidding ourselves if we think there will ever be a national carbon tax in the United States. doesn't matter who the president's going to be. I think we've seen how their system of government deals with any effort to, to, uh, to, to put a price on or limit even CO2. Uh, the Obama's tried it through, through his EPA unsuccessfully same would be true for mining you know the uh, 
the how generous do we think Mr. Uh, uh, Putin's going to be with respect to implementing a carbon tax on his potash mines or his counterpart in Belarus, their potash mines? It's not going to happen. We'll be at a competitive disadvantage. What about oil? The Bakken Formation is the largest geological oil formation in North America, bigger than Prudhoe Bay, and we share it begrudgingly with uh, North Dakota and Montana. We try to take care of, by the way, by, uh, take care of that through some horizontal drilling, but we share it in all seriousness. So well, if there's no carbon tax in the North Dakota side of the back in formation, but there's a carbon tax in, in the Estevan-Weyburn area, where do you think the rigs are going to go? This will cost the Canadian economy. There's no mistake uh, about it uh, because companies are going to go where it's, uh, where it's most advantageous to, uh, to try to invest. Uh, and I guess that's part of the concern we have with respect to the economy and the impact of the carbon tax. One final point, Roy, if I may. We had even the Minister Goodale, who uh, is from Saskatchewan, was in the media here in our province in the wake of the Prime Minister's surprise announcement on a carbon tax. And he said, well, don't worry, Brad, you can give all the car- $2.5 billion in carbon taxes, because that's how much it'll take out of these industries in our province alone. You can give it all back in income tax. <clears throat> well, that would be great if you still have a job and you're paying income tax. It's not so great when the carbon tax itself uh, dismantles key sectors of the economy and you don't have people making an income because they've lost their job. Yeah, Premier, you can't, I mean, they can't just provide part A of the equation. They have to provide part B as well. And I hear the Prime Minister talking about hundreds of thousands of exciting new jobs being brought online by the, the, their, um, the carbon tax and the initiatives of the federal government re uh, climate change. But it's also the same thing that the province of Ontario said about hundreds of thousands of exciting new jobs coming online with their electricity program. And all the Ontario consumer is seeing is massive increases in electricity prices, and they're going to continue, and we don't see any significant increase in the numbers of jobs um, in, in the province. So, uh, Right. It, ha- it hasn't happened anywhere. No. You no, know, it hasn't. You're right. A huge spike in green jobs in California. Nova Scotia undertook some very difficult decisions. It's why Premier McNeil is opposed to the carbon tax. He's saying we're already hitting our targets. Uh, there, you know, there was a report, a study out that showed that the green jobs promised uh, by the previous government in Nova Scotia uh, for the policies it took on energy have not have not uh, have not materialized. Um, you know, there's a reason why Australia voted. You know, they moved away from a carbon tax. They had one for a while, and they're moving away from it. So, the, the, there's challenge here to those who are advocates for this carbon tax. Number one, the shining example that's often pointed to is is in our country in British Columbia. You see, absolute machi- uh, emissions have gone up. Um, the economy's strong, to be sure. Uh, and I think uh, I'm a fan of Premier Clark's good economic leadership there, but. The bottom line is absolute emissions have gone up. Uh, and with respect to the jobs, uh, the, the green jobs that are promised when you do these things, they haven't actually manifest when become manifest in places that have implemented something similar. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.